normally on the Chrononauts podcast, we do sort of plan the reading material for each episode significantly ahead of time. And there have been a couple of instances where we did change things around a little bit just prior to doing the episode, like when we did the Telegraph episode. And we sort of swapped out a really short Algernon Blackwood story for a very long Henry James story, which was infuriating, but very relevant to the topic that we were doing, which the Blackwood story was kind of not. That does happen from time to time. And in this case, we had sort of planned for almost all these stories with the addition of, I believe it was, it was a C.L. Moore story, uh, Chamblot, which I would like to cover at a later time. Yeah, we'll Uh, get to her. (laughs) Definitely want to do her in general because she's just great. But (laughs) I thought that once I was reading The Weird and I came across these stories by Belgian author Jean Ray, and I read this and I just immediately went into our Discord channel and said we have to do this story the mind's psalter by jean ray because it so ties in with the sea stories that we were doing around that time and the stories that are in this episode the fit is essentially perfect and i had not read this story until last month and it just it immediately called to me and went yeah this is important and this is something you have to do and Jean Ray is a really cool writer whom I've essentially read all the short stories of that I could get my hands on in the last month. And he's probably my favorite generally new, brand new discovery since we started doing this podcast in terms of just like somebody I hadn't really known anything about before. And I probably would have come to the stories in the weird eventually anyway, because I've been reading my way through that compilation sort of haphazardly over the past couple of years, really. It's kind of funny because I had read a lot of the early 20th century stories before, but I somehow skipped the two genre stories. And I think possibly the reason I skipped them even was because there was two of them. There were two of them, and most of the stories in the book are shorter. And I just kind of thought, well, they put two in there. They must all be like, they must both be really short. Maybe they're like, prose poem weirdness or something i'll read them sometime and i didn't really think about them well that was a big mistake both stories are awesome the other story in the collection is called the shadowy street we won't be touching on that on the podcast but it is a phenomenal story and so is this one really so i would definitely suggest and i mean we try to say this at least once per episode but if you are at all interested in this fiction please read this story it's really good So our author, Jean Ray, it's a little difficult to really talk about him. His name was Jean-Raymond-Marie de Kramer, or Raymondus Johannes de Kramer, as the probably more Flemish side of him and his family would have said. He became known as Jean Ray, which was one of his many pseudonyms, which also included John Flanders, the name he used for many of his 1930s publications, including for Weird Tales magazine, where he had at least a few stories published in translation. Now, we talked briefly about other writers who sort of boulderized their background, and Dialis' name definitely came up. Well, Jean Ray is another of those sorts of people 
who created uh, quite a mythology around himself. Many, many stories that were clearly sort of fabricated to make a legend around Jean Ray, the person. Stuff about a Sioux grandmother and another grandparent that was prestigious barricade runner of the French Revolution. But truly, his origins were quite humble. His family being pretty much bakers and shoemakers. But he liked to create this legend around himself. And as well as the family background, there was stuff about him being involved in running booze to America in Prohibition years. Lucrative business. Yeah. He called their efforts heroic. He actually did get charged, which we'll come to in a moment. And various things came up. But anyway, so other things he said about himself were that he hunted wild animals in Africa and was an executioner in Venice somehow. And lots of stuff on his time on the sea, dealing in contraband, essentially being a pirate. But we do know that he went to prison for embezzlement around the time the story we are about to discuss was written. But he was most likely the fall guy for a bad investment. And it was around this time that he actually somehow got accused of running booze. And he said, well, their efforts are very heroic. So he seemed very proud, almost happy to take this on. But in reality, the money that seems to have been somehow misappropriated by him and a co-worker and it was intended for a literary journal that he was involved in at the time and was the editor of called L'Ami de Libre. So the idea of a short-lived literary magazine is about to come up very soon in the story we're doing. And this seems to be the actual thing that perhaps put Mr. de Kramer in prison during the time when this story was written. So this is kind of interesting. This would also be our first jailboard on Chrononauts, I think. So that in itself is interesting. But his self-made epitaph, which he mockingly wrote in a letter to a friend late in his life, does seem to suggest a certain amount of true humility when he rather sadly says of himself, Sigit genre l'homme sinistre qui ne fut rien pas même ministre. Or in other words, here lies Jean Ray, a man sinister, who really was nothing, not even a minister. We do know that Raymond was born in 1887 in the city of Ghent. He became interested in journalism at a young age, just before quitting school and starting an abortive career as a civil servant, which he hated and was apparently always making up ridiculous excuses as to why he could not attend work. He composed many poems around this time, and he was the editor of both Le Journal de Gant and L'Ami de Libre, which is the magazine that apparently got him in some trouble. His first book, Whiskey Tales, was published in 1925, and it was a selection of weird and macabre stories, often referred to as Conte Cruel, which is sort of a part of the uh, French tradition. And Jean Ray is sort of known as part of the Belgian fantastic school, although there do seem to be a lot of things that set him apart from that, in that while 
some of the other Belgian writers, although I'm not really familiar with most of them at this time, it's definitely something I'd like to look into. But a lot of what they did was essentially sort of highlighting really mundane situations and making the mundane into strangeness. And whereas Jean Ray's stories often actually do deal with very blatantly otherworldly things like ghosts and the living dead and vampires and all kinds of really intense stuff like that. Yeah, I think the Belgian author we covered was substantially earlier than this. Oh, the Rosny. Yeah, right. Yeah, okay. That's true, yeah. No, I was thinking of Dr. Fostrel. Yeah, Jarry, yeah. Jarry, Alfred Jarry, right, yeah. He wasn't Belgian, but he makes fun of a Belgian critic. Okay, you're right, yeah, yeah. And, and he does talk about the Belgian symbolists as well, so... Ray was meant to be incarcerated for six years, but was released after two. And at this point, he tried to make a career of writing to varying degrees of success. He did seem to write a large amount of material, though. The John Flanders pseudonym, among many others, appeared after his release, because it may have been scandalous at a certain time to have Jean Ray's name still in print. And when he did, in fact, try to write under the Jean Ray name, again, it was a collection of short stories in the 30s, which was apparently a major flop and didn't sell. So much of his work seems to have not been translated into English, and he supposedly has written something like 1,500 short stories. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that was that many. Yeah, there's a huge number. I can't find, yeah, again, like I can't, I haven't found too many translated into English, but there, there's, there does seem to be various printings at certain times so there were also a lot of newspaper pieces and yeah scripts for comic books tales for children and the novel Malpertuis. and he created several many of many of his stories are books of macabre tales also a bit of a funny story that's worth noting so there's this cheap sort of knockoff series of sherlock holmes and originally they were actually supposed to be printed with Sherlock Holmes' name on them, but the Conan Doyle estate didn't like that. So essentially what ended up happening was there were all these pamphlets of like stories that were, I guess, published under the name Harry Dixon. And I can't quite figure out if they were originally German. It, it seems that that might be the case. And Ray was supposed to translate this, possibly into Dutch. Uh, at least the publisher at the time was Dutch. And supposedly he found the stories to be so bad that he just said, I want to just rewrite all of them. And the publisher said, fine, go ahead, as long as we can still use the color cover illustrations. And so they're basically the same length. It's like, yeah, fine. So apparently he wrote like 105 of these weird detective stories between like 1934 and 1940. And they're kind of like... Sherlock Holmes pastiches, but with like supernatural weirdness in them. They have titles like The Singing Vampire and The Will of the Wisp of the Red Marsh. And apparently there was a case of stories that essentially overtook their original source material because obviously they were very much his own thing. And he just sort of, he somehow became known as the Harry Dixon guy even though his text wasn't the original at all. So it's a pretty weird story. Yeah. Later on, he did 
scripts and scenarios for the Tintin comics, which became very popular. And Malpertuis was also made into a movie in the early 70s starring Orson Welles. So there's that. I haven't watched it yet, but I actually started reading Malpertuis and it's really cool. It's really cool. Probably not something for the podcast, but it's just the way he plays around with narrative and stuff is awesome. And we're going to see a little bit of that in this story, in fact. So The Mind Salter is a story that was written while Ray was experiencing his prison time. It was published in 1930 as Le Sautier de Mayence in the magazine Le Bien Public and composed between 1928 and 1929. The story starts with the men on an English trawler, the North Caper, who have rescued a dying man from the ocean. He's bleeding profusely and won't live long. And the author acknowledges that most dying men are concise and don't have a lot to say. But this one is different. But he'll also make an allusion to the person who is recording these events, who does tend to write for various short-lived literary magazines. So he might be embellishing a little bit. Now, this person who is telling the story while lying bleeding on the deck does not seem aware of the blood of his ebbing life, but speaks clearly and quickly. And the initial narrator is the first mate. The account set down is that of Reins, a radio operator, who contributes to his magazines and likes to sort of... uh, Ray is basically saying, so excuse the stylishness. The dying man, Ballister, tells of how he was a captain, and was hired by a mysterious man, henceforth referred to as the schoolmaster, to command a chartered ship. They met in the Mary Hart Tavern, where mostly bargemen hang out. Ballister studies the plans for a 60-ton schooner. It's almost a yacht, he says, with some approval, though he frowns at the mention of the auxiliary engine, because he doesn't like such newfangled inventions. The schoolmaster has rechristened the ship the Mines Assaulter, an unusual name inspired by the fact that the year before his great-uncle had died and left him a trunk full of old books, including an original Mines Assaulter. So I think this is sort of a red herring in the text. The Mines Assaulter is, I guess, a hymnal yeah. that was mm-hmm. published. It's supposedly the second printed book after the Gutenberg Bible. Yeah, at least on the printing press. Yes. It's apparently rarer than the Gutenberg Bible. I think there's less yes, than... Yes, there's, there's only 10 copies known to exist. Yeah, and I was right looking now. at the copies that are posted online, and some of them have musical notation in the hymns, and others don't. Yeah. I think it's mm-hmm. the one in the British Library that I looked at that has the musical notation. Unfortunately, it is written in that medieval musical notation style that I don't know how to read, so... I wasn't able to translate any of that for the music this episode, unfortunately, but it's out there. So I think there's two editions, essentially. There's a shorter one and a longer one, and I guess must be the longer one. Well, no, they're they're the same length. It's just the ones without the musical notation, the printing left blank space. So whatever monk or scribe that was working with the stuff would fill in the musical notation himself. The one that I looked at in the 
Austrian library had a bunch of blank space just on the page because they, for whatever reason, never put the musical notation on that copy. Well, that's interesting. Mm. What I was reading about it actually suggested that notation might have come first, but I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting, but it does seem like a bit of a red herring in the story, yeah, although it does. there yeah. are Christian themes throughout, so I kind of... The story was, to me, so fascinating and worth so many rereads because it inspires so many questions, but unlike Medusa, where I felt slightly frustrated sometimes, I liked all these questions. I like being left with them. So the schoolmaster says the name is inspired in gratitude or sentiment, but there was something unpleasant in his demeanor and tone. So he said he, he had this copy of the Mind Solter and he sold this particular book. And it seems that it's that sale that allowed him to charter the ship. And now he wants to hire a captain and six men to go on a scientific expedition cruise of sorts. And they are to sail from Glasgow into the Minch Channel to the north, reaching Cape Wrath. Captain Ballister is reputed to know these waters well, and the schoolmaster butters him up a bit, making him feel pleased and likely to welcome the prospective voyage. The schoolmaster surprises Ballister by his knowledge of the secret, known only to a few old sailors, Big Toe Bay, a little south of the Cape, and that's where the schoolmaster proposes to meet the ship. From there, the schoolmaster vaguely indicates they'll head west into lonely waters, and Ballister thinks he understands, but doesn't. The schoolmaster's mission, he stresses, is scientific in nature, but he's worried about rivals thwarting his discoveries. He says not to expect him to help with manning the ship, and they then go over the crew. There's Stevens, a strong and taciturn man who likes to eat heartily. Turnip, a good sailor who likes to drink and has been to prison. This is no problem to the captain at all. Walker is ugly, missing part of his nose. The schoolmaster likens him to one of the wax whores at Madame Tussauds, an odd comment given what will come later. There are Jalewin and Friar Tuck, who are inseparable. Jalewin is a smart person who might have royal blood in him, and turns out Friar Tuck is some sort of sensitive. The latter is also a cook. An odd incident occurs then as a derelict slovenly-looking sailor shuffles into the bar and orders a glass of gin, only to adopt an expression of absolute horror when he spots the schoolmaster, drop his drink, and run out again as fast as he can. The schoolmaster doesn't seem to even notice, but Bowser does, and then later he and the men set out, and everything's great until they get to Big Toe Bay, and then it starts to get rougher on the sea. There are whirlpools, unpredictable tides, and they almost run into a half-sunken wreck. Bowser says they'll have to beware of scavengers. They put down anchor and wait for the schoolmaster, I guess. And everything seems calm, but then the scavengers, in fact, do show up. Now, there's plenty of fish, and Stevens likes to go ashore and hunt game for them. It's pretty nice life. And the description is quite idyllic in a way. But then someone starts shooting at Stevens while he's out close to the boat, filling a keg with water. And then they start peppering the ship. 
Stevens is very calm about it, and he wakes up his fellows, and they can see smoke from a cliff above them. Then suddenly they hear shouts of fear, and a body falls onto the beach from the escarpment, 300 feet above, and then another. They wear the leather garb of the formidable Wreckers of Cape Wrath, which is a great pirate crew name if I've ever heard one. But now they're as ungainly birds falling in undignified fashion into broken piles. And it seems as though they can see one struggling with something invisible. Jaluin has the odd idea that he'd like to avenge them somehow, even though they were trying to kill the sailors on the Psalter. And he calls for Friar Took, who seems troubled, and tells him to shoot at something that's been watching them from the cliff. But it's gone. And then they hear a whistle, and who should come down to the shore but their passenger and charter, the schoolmaster. He's instated in a very nice cabin, and he has the captain overnights and gives him drink, which the captain seems to like very much. And he doesn't talk to him while this is happening. So, unlike at the Merry Heart, the schoolmaster himself refrains from drinking and doesn't talk either, just silently pours over his books the whole time. Sounds a little bit uncomfortable, but, I don't know, good drink is worth a lot, I guess. So, the schoolmaster does go topside occasionally to take sextant readings. They're heading northwest, and Bowser thinks they're bound for Iceland. Jaluin, though, disagrees. He overall seems a little wiser than the captain in most things. They do spot some ships, and the sailors exchange hearty insults. One day, though, everyone on the ship is struck by a strange nausea and feeling of displacement at the same time. Turnip shouts that they've been poisoned, but it passes quickly enough. The wind has changed, though, and it's a bit inexplicable. They must strain to follow their apparent course. On the eighth day, Ballister senses the men are uneasy. They want to talk to their captain, and they feel something is very wrong, but they can't really define it. They address him as their friend, though, and visibly relax when he admits he also senses something strange. The water, in fact, is itself strange, having an odd red-colored appearance, and streaks and bubbles, which emit weird sounds that resemble laughter at times. There are no birds. Some rats that were in the storeroom all ran overboard at once. And the sky looks weird, too. Especially at night. Captain Ballister has been too drunk to notice. He decides to defer to Jaluin, whom he senses is very experienced. And this is pretty much what's going to happen for the rest of the story. Jaluin looks to Friar Tuck, who says, There is something terrible all around them. Something Worse than death. They want to know where the schoolmaster is taking them. Bowster sends Jaluin to go talk to him. But to their surprise, he's gone. That night, freed from his silent companion with the bottle, Bowster goes topside and sees the sky. A strange black abyss full of unknown constellations and geometric patterns. I got a little bit of a king in yellow vibe from this actually just the way he described it and the way he described like it made me think of the opening poem to the book the famous act one that people can still sort of read without going insane right so he says good god where are we 
the clouds roll in and Jaluin concedes it's better as the weird stars would probably bother the others. But I'm sure they'll be seeing them eventually. So he opines they should turn back even though he thinks it'll be useless. They've clearly entered another plane of existence. The compass is completely inert, not going wild like usual with some of these those sort of polar journeys. And Ballister is losing his nerve. Jaluin says they have passed into another dimension. He says, rightly, that even if they were somehow transported to another planet or another star system, they would still see familiar constellations, most likely. But not here, in the nth dimension. Even the sun, he says, must be some sort of equivalent. He thinks they'll die here, be permitted to die. But when Ballister mentions the nth dimension theory and asks for clarification, Jaluin sort of belittled his own idea, saying there's no proof that such existence is possible any more than there are proofs of two-dimensional or completely linear beings. So, shades of flatland here. Yeah, right. That's exactly what it reminded me of. Mm-hmm. Right. I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really cool making these sorts of connections because we've kind of been doing that throughout this episode and, and I like it. They suspect the schoolmaster, of course. Tuck had an occult premonition of an unscalable wall with terrible things going on behind it when he first saw him. Jaluin has learned to trust Friar Tuck's impressions. He thought there was something malicious in the new name for the ship also. At this point, Jaluin becomes sort of mate and even asserts greater authority than the captain on most things. And he says that they should continue to make headway but reef their sails. At night, they have a gathering in Ballister's cabin. It's warm and pleasant and there are delicious sandwiches made by Stevens and punch made with Jaluin's personal rum stash. Walker goes up to take the helm. The sea gets rough, and suddenly Friar Tuck and Jaluin tense up as if listening. Then there's some cursing and running feet, and a terrible scream, followed by a strange animalistic call, or yodel. The helm is abandoned, and so is Walker's thermos of punch. He, himself, is nowhere. The night of course, ends in anguish and insomnia. The next day, it appears one of the sails needs repairing. They all start working, and Turnip climbs up the mainmast, only to start shouting madly that there's someone up there. There's the sound of a struggle, and something flies up into the air. Stevens and the captain start going for the lifeboat, but something weird happens. A wave sweeps the deck, and the lifeboat's chains snap, and it is simply gone. And so is Turnip. The sail and rigging are covered in fresh blood. The sea is aglow under the ship, seemingly aflame with an eerie luminescence. It seems concentrated specifically on the ship, with the sea around them as transparent as glass. Far, far below, Ballister and Jaluin see what looks like a sunken city of domes and towers. The streets teem with amorphous beings. Jaluin pulls Ballister back just in time as something seems to rise from below and hits the ship's underside a mighty blow. They see writhing tentacles and a hideous face glaring at them. Sails and halyards snap like twigs. 
Jaluin spares a thought for Walker and Turnip. The next day is misty, and around noon, Bowser tries to sight the sun and use the sextant. He sees a weird stream in the air, and something hits him in the head. He's down, and hears struggle. Jaluin drags him back to his cabin, and he's in tears. Ballister comes to his senses to find that the other bunk is occupied by the now-dying Stevens. It's as though he's been crushed by something. A silvery bubble, Jaluin says. Friar Tuck is gone forever. Jaluin is heartbroken. The two men stay in the cabin with the dying Stevens. At night, they hear someone walking on deck. Several someones, in fact. It's very sinister. And Jaluin laughs and says, They have a new crew, topside, working for them. They perform a complex maneuver. They're monsters, drunk on blood and murder. But they're sailors, he says. Ballister reasons they must be wholly natural beings, at least on their own plane, and that they're doing this because there's a specific destination in mind. They go topside in the morning, and it's deserted. The maneuvers are not continued, but they are being pulled northeast by a current. And some days pass, and Ballister is really into the whiskey, drinking heavily and yelling and cursing the schoolmaster. He mentions his books offhand, which had never come out before, and Jaluin takes notice. Sounds like a pretty big oversight, yeah. Well, it's, I'm not surprised that he wouldn't think of them, though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All this kind of, nobody really knows what's going on, right? Maybe something like, oh, the books maybe should have come out before, but I don't know. I think the schoolmaster's cabin was kind of shut up the whole time, and then they had other things to worry about. And just, uh, yeah, so... Yeah, I mean, more an oversight on Ballister's part rather than the author. Yeah. Jaluin, though, is really interested in them. And he goes off to the other cabin. And it's kind of funny because Ballister is pretty drunk and he's sort of muttering and cursing the whole time. But he's kind of laughing about it, too. He's kind of like, I'm the captain! He can't talk to me like that. And he's talking to Stevens like he's his parrot or something. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's funny. Jaluin comes back all excited, talking of unbelievable discoveries, and wonders if the schoolmaster ever mentions some kind of crystal box or object. Then the next day, Jaluin appears to be gone, and Bowser panics. It isn't until noon that he discovers a sheet of paper pinned to the wall of the schoolmaster's cabin. It's a note from Jaluin. He says he's gone up the mainmast to see something, but that he might not return. If so, Ballister should forgive him for his death, and then he should burn all the books at the stern of the ship, far from the mainmast. Presumably, something lives up there now, and he should do it as quick as possible, and be wary, as something will try to prevent him. May God have mercy on you, and on all of us, he signs it, Duke. And, indeed, Ballister's effort to fulfill the last request is not unnoticed. As he turns the engine up to full and sets fire to the Tums with gasoline, who should appear in the water behind the ship but the schoolmaster? And he alternates between promises of riches and glory and imprecations of death and destruction in a really awesome scene that I could totally imagine playing out in an awesome epic movie or something. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. This old wizard 
like in the water, just yelling, I'll give you everything in creation! I'll burn you in hell! Like, just, it's so good. It's so good. And he seems to be controlling some kind of supernatural forces as he draws nearer to the ship. The crystal box is revealed, hidden in one of the books, and Bowser exclaims aloud. The schoolmaster stands upright in the water, hands outstretched like claws, shrieking that Bowser is about to destroy the ultimate knowledge. And there are strange yodeling cries all around. Are they approving or not? Hard to tell. Bowser goes into the flames and des- decides to help things along by smashing the crystal. There is a sudden burst of nausea and darkness, and that's all he really remembers before coming to on the North Caper. They found him swimming in an unconscious daze. There's no sign of a ship anywhere near. Though the cabin boy, whom nobody listens to, says he saw a transparent ship rise off the port bow and then disappear under the water. Ballister knows he's dying, but is just happy to be among men on his own world. It's not quite over yet, though, because while the captain was unconscious at latitude 60 degrees north, longitude 22 degrees west, something terrible occurs. The two seamen on watch see hands grasping the shroud, and a figure leaps onto the ship astern and starboard. It looks like a clergyman, all bedraggled from the sea. One of the men is knocked down, and the figure rushes into the forecastle and attacks Ballister. The cabin boy shouts for help. The mysterious human shape runs out and leaps into the sea and is shot by the mate, emitting a strange howl. He then gets pulled up into the ship again with a grappling iron. The body is surprisingly light. Indeed, it is a sort of mannequin, or at least the upper part of one, and the bottom seems to be missing. It's after that point that the dying Bowser tells his story, and he's shown the mannequin as a terrible fright and does not awaken till in the hospital six days later, when he kisses a cross and dies. The men take the mannequin to a learned reverend. They say it smells of formic acid and phosphorus. The captain clarifies that it smells like an octopus. The priest makes some ominous pronouncements about Leviathan. He says, On the last day of creation, it is from the sea that God will cause the blasphemous beast to appear. The men can't but bow to the holy word. They try to banish what they've seen from their minds. Mind Salter, my friends. I I thought this was awesome. I, <laughs> this was such a fun story and so good. 
definitely my favorite of all the stories this month, personally. It was just so nice to have a new discovery that's like just brought me back to reading something like Lovecraft for the first time, like that kind of same feeling almost. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that I think that most people who read this, at least in this part of the world, would probably think of Lovecraft. But there's no evidence that he ever read Lovecraft at all. And I think that because of Lovecraft's popularity, these days there might be a tendency to assume that Lovecraft is the originator of this kind of tale, when that's clearly not the case. I mean, a lot of people were doing this sort of thing at this time. (laughs) But yeah, this was great. Um, In addition to the cool horror imagery and the weird interdimensional cosmic nature of it. There's a lot of little touches that I really appreciate. Like right in the beginning, he says that the tale that we're being related from Ballister is unreliable because it's being told to us by Ren, the radio man who has literary intentions of sprucing up with his prose ambitions. There's just little things like that in the prose that make it a really well-written story. And it was a real pleasure to read. Yeah, I agree. I thought it was a really great story, and the style of it is great. That That's what really makes it. I think he has this really dry way of writing that's very, it's very fun to read, and I'm glad that you chose this one for us to read. I think it's a good choice. Yeah, definitely, and I'm really curious about his other stuff. How many were you able to find that were translated into English? I have found two short story compilations and the novel Marpertuis. Now, the short story compilation Ghouls in My Grave was, uh, I guess, originally printed in 1965, and it contains this story. Hmm. And it is the same translation that is in The Weird, published and edited by Anna Jeff Vandermeer. In that book also contains the story The Shadowy Street, which is a fantastic story as well. I think that the playing around with the different levels of narrative and different sort of perspectives on the same story and all that uh, it seems to be something that he likes to do it's all over the shadowy street and some of the other short stories and especially the novel Malpertuis, which is several nested narratives contained within one another all of whom have their own personalities and and motivations so it's, it's something that he really seems to like to play with a lot yeah no that's interesting yeah. and i mean just the amount of volume that he seems to have written. I mean, I can understand it with a guy like Sonarans who's just turning out like formulaic crap, but I mean, this is not. And it makes yeah. me wonder of like how much of his stuff was just him going through the motions and how much of it was like really interesting stuff like this. I'd imagine the stuff that has been translated into English is probably the best or most interesting stuff, but I mean, I guess I really have no way of knowing. Yeah, I really don't know, and I'd like to read more. I mean, those short stories were so good, I pretty much devoured them like within a week. You know, I, mm-hmm. There weren't that many of them, uh, maybe something like a dozen tales yeah. all told. Mm-hmm. And there's certainly a lot more, and I actually don't, I, I think that there probably is a lot more of interest than not, mm-hmm. just judging by what I've read of his work so far. Yeah, People do seem to think that Malpertuis might be his sort of overall masterpiece, so I'm actually really into reading more of that. I pretty much just started it, so I've got quite a ways to go. But I just couldn't—I couldn't help myself. I just once I read that story, I read the shadowy street, and then I was like, "Yeah, I have to read more of this guy. This is this is, this is really good." 
So yeah, I mean, as well as the the style, which is very attractive to read, there's also some really nice humor throughout. Yeah, it's very understated though. Like it's may not quite strike everyone as funny, I guess. There's just certain little things, you know, that he does, like little sly, wry remarks and stuff that are just good and they're just funny. And some of the stories have a little more of that. He seems to like to write about shady characters, like thieves and grave robbers and stuff like that. (laughs) And so he, I guess, injects a lot of humor into those kind of portrayals. Mm -hmm. It's very macabre, sort of morbid kind of humor, as some people might say. But we like we all like that kind of thing, I think. So it works, and it's really good. Even the names of the crew in this are pretty amusing. Yeah. Oh, Turn yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, even when he mentions when he's talking about the crew, and just like a moment that really struck me as funny, is when he's talking about the criminal record of one of them, and, you know, the schoolmaster is like, I don't care. And then the next one he mentions, and the schoolmaster is like, I assume he has a criminal record too? And he's like, yeah, yeah right. he does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. He seems, he seems pretty, uh, you know, he's sort of the person that romanticizes rebellion and sort of like the whole thing about him sort of creating this mythology for himself where his like, his grandmother was like a part of the Sioux tribe who was fighting against the settlers and his other grandparent was like involved in the French Revolution and he was a bootlegger and just, he seems to like this kind of thing, right? <laughs> I thought that more than I might expect from some stories like this, I thought that the the characterization of the people on the ship was pretty good. Like, it, it really, not all of them really got a moment to shine, but, like, when they were gone, I actually really did feel something, you know? <laughs> like, I, it was sad Yeah. to see them all go like that. Yeah, I felt the same way whenever one of them would die or something. I, I felt kind of upset about it. And the deaths were particularly horrible, too. I mean, yeah. one guy getting crushed by, like, this weird supernatural bubble thing and just being in, like, agony for days. It's not yeah. a pleasant way to go. No, <laughs> not at all. And, like, even though, you know, they don't all get a point of view and they don't all get, like, good dialogue, per se, or anything, like, he did a really good job of making us, like, feel at home with these people, like... I guess another con. Again, I have to do this to poor Visiak, but like you know, the contrast with something like Medusa, right? Yeah. Where we spent a whole book with these sailors, but we still don't really, we don't really feel a lot for them. Like the captain dies at the end of Medusa as well, and you know, it's just like, I don't know. It's just it's he really. I mean, Visiak tries, but we really just don't. I don't know. It just seems like Ray just naturally, in a lot less time, introduces us to these men. And makes us feel like they're a family together, almost. Mm -hmm. And I really like how the captain, you know, he goes, like, he's been drinking for a while in the cabin of the schoolmaster. And he's like, obviously, drink is one of his weaknesses. And the men kind of go to him and they're like, we think something is really wrong and we want to talk to you about it. (laughs) And I thought it was going to be like a really tense moment. And there was going to be like, oh, there's going to be a mutiny on ship or something. But no, when they realize he kind of feels the same way, everybody just kind of relaxes and is like, yeah, we're in this together then. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Yeah. Like, that's much better, right? Like, <laughs> and it just feels really like, in terms of a lot of the stuff we've seen so far on the scene, it's been a problem for men to stick together and do what they need to do. Whereas 
these guys, this crew seems well chosen and they seem like they really get along. And so when something happens to them, I don't know, like I really feel it. You know, I feel like <laughs> it's sad and it's like it's angering even. This shouldn't be happening to them. Much more personal connection, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And he does do the, like, the this, this sense of fear is something that he seems to do rather well. It just seems to be a theme in all his fiction. And the essay that I read on him was called Ghosts, Fear, and the Supernatural in Genre. And he talks about, like, the actual fear of being afraid as being an actual thing that fascinated Ray and something that even towards the end of his life he was thinking about. And he told a friend... Because I guess, you know, he's quite old by this point. And as he died in 1964 and supposedly peacefully. But he had told a friend that he was so afraid of dying that he didn't want to go to sleep. And mm. it's like, I feel like there's some of the creator really coming through in the stories. And in this story and in like everything else that I've read, I, I really feel a certain identification with it and i i like this a lot so it does engender a lot of questions though what was the schoolmaster really doing do you think yeah i mean that's pretty unclear i don't know if he just wants to kill people or maybe there's something in these weird latin books that are useful to him or maybe break through to the human dimension and not this weird i, I don't know it, it just doesn't seem like there's a clear motivation for his actions Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's a lot of vague there's vague hints, but so I guess my question would be, what it comes down to is, was he working with the tentacle things in the city, the beings that seemed to be? And I didn't really describe that too much, but he really did. He actually it, it was cool. It was like it it did kind of make me think of again what Lovecraft wrote about a lot of the time, which mm-hmm. is kind of these weird alien cities and cyclopean architecture and like things like that under the sea or in strange places in the world and he really described it like it was a vision they had of this teeming metropolis of alien life in a city under the sea and i don't know i kind of thought like so is the schoolmaster opposed to them or is he working with them i kind of feel like maybe maybe he's opposed to them and maybe he wanted the knowledge that they had i assume that he was like a human manifestation of them but maybe i was looking at that the, the wrong way mm-hmm. i was thinking kind of similarly where he was kind of a manifestation too but i, I, I mean know. you know it's vague <laughs> yeah it is you can vague. kind of it, it can be interpreted however you want it to be he certainly seems familiar with these weird cities and things like that uh, knowing the terrain and it's, it seemed like pretty dangerous waters to be in. Oh, yeah. There was a, um, what's the name of the site? The Lovecraft Reader or something. It's these two women authors. I, I can't remember what their names are at present, unfortunately, because I just kind of came across it today. But they talked about this story. And one of them also thought that maybe he was a manifestation of whatever those forces were. But I tend to think, I tend to think not. Mm-hmm. I think maybe the reason I think that is that if he was really mounting some kind of scientific expedition, which, and you know, let's just assume that everything he told Ballister, even though he was obviously hiding things, was essentially true. I feel like he would have done things to make sure that the ship was okay. I think that as evil as he obviously was, as much as he didn't care for any of the men, 
because he probably could have helped them and he probably could have been like yeah all i have to do is destroy this crystal box and we'll go back home right but he didn't do that in fact he didn't even stay on the ship maybe because i don't know because he couldn't maybe or because he was afraid they would find him mm-hmm. i don't know it's just maybe my feeling about it and again like Maybe it's just influenced by the fact that I read Claimed, but I I remember thinking the same thing when I first read this. But I kind of felt like those two forces were opposed and that maybe the denizens of the the alien plane in the city and so on were not the same as the schoolmaster. And the schoolmaster was, in fact, trying to take something from them or learn Mm -hmm. from them. Yeah, right, the forbidden yeah. knowledge. Yeah, like a conflict, a conflict where Ballister and his crew are just kind of stuck in the middle, like in the crossfire. Yeah, I feel like that's kind of what the story was. I feel like there was this kind of this conflict behind the scenes that we weren't really totally made aware of because the people on the ship weren't made aware of and they were our mm-hmm. point of view characters. So we didn't get to learn about what the conflict between the schoolmaster and whatever forces he was dealing with actually were. Yeah, I guess it's quite literally outside the realm of human dimensions. Right, exactly. So I guess, you know, I mean, he could have been one of them. He could have been like an alien or something. But my guess is that those things didn't want, they didn't want the Mind Salter in their realm. Like, they didn't want them to be there. Mm-hmm. But the schoolmaster brought them there with his crystal box device, whatever that was. And it's really neat. I, I like the I like <laughs> all the questions that the story brings out. You know, I feel like, yeah, I feel like there was a lot going on that we weren't privy to and we can just sort of guess at, which is fun to do, because especially from the perspective of a modern reader with like almost 100 years of extra genre experience, kind of like we can think about oh, what kind of story was beneath the story. Yeah. <laughs> And I feel like I feel like there was something like there was some kind of conflict beyond the conflict that we saw. And then, yeah, the ending, like, so he's a mannequin or something. <laughs> was he a mannequin in the beginning? Like, was he a real person? No, I, I get the sense he just like blinked out to his other dimension. And what remained was an empty shell, which is, mm-hmm. you know, the, the wig and the mannequin. Yeah, yeah. So presumably maybe he had done this before. I mean, the the weird incident in the bar where the down-on-his-luck-looking sailor appeared to recognize him or something about him. Yeah, that was the sense I got for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So there's interesting sort of role-switching going on in this story, like, throughout. The captain sort of gives his authority to Jaluin, and the schoolmaster sort of goes from being a passenger to some weird kind of stalker, and Friar Tuck sort of gives up his cook role to Stevens, <laughs> make the sandwiches yeah you know it's <laughs> sort of interesting and there's a lot of emotion on display from the men as well lots of <laughs> tears and affection in equal measure it doesn't really seem like Hodgson's experience that's for sure <laughs> so i wonder how well raymond knew to see again this sort of aspects of his bi- biography that he liked to play up but how much of it is real i'm not quite sure i'd be interested to see if there is an actual like really well-researched and put-together full-length biography of Sean Ray out there. <laughs> there not I don't know of one. Yeah, I mean, I get the sense like with a lot of these authors, there's not a lot written on their personal lives. Yeah. Probably through the passage of time when they fall through 
obscurity, primary documents are lost, and we don't have access to their correspondence in the same way that we have access to like a Lovecraft's correspondence. Yeah. So those kind of intimate personal details about their lives may be just speculation or the case of some of the authors gleaming information from like census data or address from a postcard or, or something like that. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's what, what we're kind of relying on for little bits of information on Tialis, for instance. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> now, Jean Ray is, is well, more well known. There have been major exhibitions of his work in Belgium in the 1980s and 90s. Mm -hmm. He is recognized, especially in Belgium and possibly Holland as well. So he isn't without some accolades, but certainly deserves more in the English speaking world, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I think another parallel to Lovecraft, though, is that the forbidden knowledge esoteric books, either fictional or non-fictional play a major role in a lot of his stories yeah that's always a neat thing mm -hmm. to play up yeah right and you see that here with the books that the schoolmaster has although we don't really get to learn a lot about them we do see the crystal box which i feel like the denizens of the other dimension i feel like they wanted that they wanted that back somehow and he wanted to prevent that he's certainly pretty upset about losing it he was certainly very <laughs> upset about losing it yeah <laughs> And I kind of feel like, again, I'm just guessing, but that was my reading of it just because of everything else that I've experienced in the hundred years intervening between that story and everything we know now about weird fiction and, and the way people have written it. I felt like this must be what's happening. They must, they must want their weird box back. And that's why they're upset. <laughs> yeah. And he's upset because he doesn't want them to have it back but he still wants to be in their realm to discover whatever secrets that they have. <laughs> now, obviously, if he was a bit more of a nice person, he maybe would have prepared them better. <laughs> I don't know how, but he might have prepared them better. Doesn't seem like his style, though. Yeah. Yeah, not really. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad that everybody enjoyed this one as much. It's really something I, I liked a lot, and The Shadowy Street might be even better but it's perhaps even less SF than this one is. But it's uh, this one also fit in because we've been doing so many sea stories lately. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This kind of ends our time on the sea, though, for now. And I think that it's time to move more plainly and directly into other dimensions of space and time. Mm -hmm.